0: Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 13. The Word of God speaks to us. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body... I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, or is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's word to us.
0: Thanks be to God. All right, you guys can uh, have a seat. Welcome, right? Um, hey, if you, um, if you are kind of new to our church, one of the things that we love to do um, is we just take books of the Bible and we just preach through them. And some weeks you get some really amazing texts, and some weeks you get texts like what we just read, and it kind of forces you to deal with some of the uncomfortable things in the Bible that's actually really good and healthy for us. And so this is one of those passages that this whole chapter we're going to go through. And it's one of those that if I was just given a a week to preach on whatever I wanted, I probably wouldn't go, man, I really feel like the Lord wants me to take 1 Corinthians 5 and preach that. Like, that's probably not what I would choose. But God actually has this for us and actually can speak to us through that. That's why, like, even in reading a passage like that, I love that we end with, this is God's word to us. It really is God's word to us. So, um, if you don't know me, my name is Aaron Addison. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And, uh, and hey, just to start us off, I, I, I'm kind of, I actually enjoy sports, oddly enough. Uh, I know it doesn't look it, but I do enjoy sports. And uh, this summer, uh, there is this Pro Bowl uh, quarterback, Deshaun Watson, who signed one of the largest contracts in NFL history with the Cleveland Browns, Boo. And um, But this contract is worth over $230 million. He got $45 million right off the bat just for signing, just as like a signing bonus. I need one of those, please. And uh, But here's what's interesting. You won't find... Deshaun Watson playing on, uh, on TV this week or any week coming up on any Sunday uh, because since 2021, over two dozen women have filed civil lawsuits against him and have come forward with accusations of sexual assaults against Watson. And even though he hasn't faced any criminal charges, the NFL actually decided to discipline Watson they suspended him for eleven games, and they fined him five million dollars and Many fans felt like the NFL actually was not going far enough in this that they had an obligation to actually uh, discipline him further and discipline one of their own and Many people questioned whether um, whether we should be paying millions of dollars for a sex offender to be playing football and but regardless of where. People stood, here's a couple interesting things. No one questioned that the NFL had authority to discipline him. No one was like, What? They can't do that. Um, Everyone kind of assumed, Yeah, they can do that. And no one was really surprised that they did, right? Maybe they thought it should have been less. Maybe they thought it should have been more. But no one was really surprised or shocked by that. Now, some years earlier, a long-standing member of our church had his mugshot plastered across the local noose. He had been arrested for misconduct of a sexual nature. He was accused of violating a number of women. And eventually, all of the charges were dropped. Now, what does a church do in a situation like that? So we could easily look at scandals in sports teams or corporations or in the government, and we typically expect some sort of discipline for misconduct like that. But in the church, things are not so clear, right? Things are a little muddier. Like the church is, first of all, the church is a place of forgiveness, A place of grace and love, a place where people come when they actually don't have their life together. Every single week, we come together and do what we just did, where we come and we confess our sins, we confess the wrongs that we've done, and we receive the assurance of God's grace. So here's kind of the thought I want to lead us down. Wouldn't some sort of discipline seem to contradict the ideals that the church stands for? And even, especially maybe, whenever a person hasn't even really committed a crime per se, maybe criminal charges are dropped or something doesn't happen, but maybe they're just living in a way that's massively incongruent with their profession of faith. Well, thankfully, the Corinthian church was jacked up enough to help us. (laughs) Because Paul is actually addressing some things In there. If you're just joining us, Paul, who's the author of this letter, is writing to the Corinthian church, which is just an absolute mess. And he actually started this church many years before he wrote this letter. And now the church is just going sideways. And for the last few weeks, Paul has been talking about their divisions and, in particular, their distrust of him. And now Paul is going to kind of take a hard shift right? So if you've been with us, we're going to experience this hardship. Now the tone of this letter changes. The things that Paul wants to talk about changes at this point. And he's going to start addressing some of the real world situations they are dealing with on the ground. And the first one he chooses to bring up is a real doozy, okay? So 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So there are two tragedies going on in this text. The first is there's a member of the Corinthian church that's engaging in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. Okay, you heard me right. That's what's going on here. And even in a city like Corinth that celebrated sexual freedom, this was enough to make pagans blush, right? Even the city's kind of like, did you hear what's going on in there? And this wasn't just hearsay or rumors. This was a publicly known fact. Apparently, this man was very open and unashamed about the relationship that he was having. But that's the first tragedy. But the second tragedy is just as bad As the first, and actually seems to be the thing that Paul is most concerned about. And that's this the Corinthians responded to this man's behavior with what Paul calls arrogance, and later he's gonna say is boasting. In other words, they weren't, they were tolerating his behavior, but they weren't just tolerating it, they were endorsing it and celebrating it. Now, why would they do that? That makes no sense. Why would they do that? Well, a couple reasons that probably drove them. First, the Corinthian church emphasized the freedom they had in Jesus. Their kind of mantra, if they had a sign outside the front of their church, what it would say is, all things are lawful for me. That was their mantra. That's what they bang over and over again. And they believed that because of the grace of Jesus to forgive sins, they were free to live however they saw fit. What mattered was not their behavior, but their spirituality. So that's kind of going on at play. But also there's something else. The Corinthians were probably pandering to this man. So we don't know for sure. This is a bit of reading into it, but it seems like Paul later, he's gonna connect this man's sexual immorality with greed. And it's very possible that this man was influential, that he was wealthy, that he was well-known, that he had high social standing in the church. And as a result, the Corinthians didn't want to offend him. He had all the power. So they kind of were like, We're just going to keep quiet about it. So what is the church to do in a situation like this? Are their hands tied? I mean, in reality, this man is not doing anything criminal. He's not doing anything that we would send him to jail for. This is a consensual relationship. And the church is supposed to be this place of love and forgiveness. So can the church just let it be? And Paul's answer is going to be no. The church actually has to take action. So let's read it, uh, starting in the second part of verse two. Paul goes on, he says, Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, Paul pronounces this judgment against this man and tells the church to remove him from among them. And in particular, he calls the Corinthians to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Wow, Paul, that escalated quickly, right? I mean, that sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, what's Paul saying here? A couple things, uh, Let's things, let's just dive into this for a second. What does it mean delivering him over to Satan? Well, that really is just another way of saying he's being sent out of the church, okay? Throughout the New Testament, Satan is described as the ruler of this world. And even in one place, he's like the God of this world. And he's influencing the world. He's drawing hearts away from Jesus. But the church kind of is standing opposed to that. It's seen as this place of safety, this place of refuge from the schemes of the enemy. And so John, he puts it like this. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one, Satan, does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So Paul, in saying deliver them to Satan, he's just meaning, hey, you need to remove this man from the church and send him back into the world. Send him out of the church into the world, into the sphere that Satan has power and control. And the purpose for it is for the destruction of the flesh, right? And what does that mean? Well, if you've been with us, uh, Paul has actually talked about flesh a couple times before, that word flesh. And Paul means those things in us that stand opposed to the Spirit, those inherent desires in us that wanna follow, if you will, the way of Corinth. And so here's what Paul's saying. Paul's desire is that this man's flesh, through this act, that this man's flesh, his sinful desires, whatever is in him that's making him choose this path, whatever that is, would be destroyed. That as he's sent out of the church, and back into the world, that as he experiences afflictions and trials and temptations separated from the community of God, that God would actually use that. God would use that to bring about repentance in this man's heart. Bring about a turning, a change, a moving away from what he did before. Notice the last line in this paragraph. It's so important for this whole idea. He says, You're to to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that, so here's the reason why, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. You see, Paul's hope in removing this man from the church is not that he would be canceled, it's not that he would be cast out forever. It's not that he would get what was coming to him. It's not even to save the church's PR image. But the goal is that this man would actually repent, turn from his sin, turn from this relationship, and would be saved. Paul wants the church to even be ready to receive this kind of man who's boasting about his relationship with his stepmother to receive him back when he returns, comes to his senses, puts away his sin, and begins to follow Jesus once again. Now, what's the point? Why, Why should the church engage in this? Doesn't this go against everything the church stands for? Back in the beginning, like we talked about. Well, no, actually, it's because of who the church is that Paul tells them to remove this man from among them. So listen to this in verse six. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this act of removing this man from the church was not just for the man, but it was also for the church. It's also because of the church and who the church is. And Paul is going to use this Old Testament analogy that kind of is lost on us. It's great when the Bible uses these pictures, but this one you're like, I have no idea. That made me more confused, Paul. Um, But he uses this analogy of leavened and unleavened bread. And leaven is what is in dough that makes it rise when it's baked. And even just a little leaven will spread throughout the dough. And maybe a better kind of analogy, Andrew Wilson proposed a more modern kind of analogy for this would be to say, a little mold spreads through the whole cheese, right? It's like, it has this spreading activity that kind of goes through it. And in the same way, Paul calls the Corinthian church to remove this man from among them because of who they are as a church. The leaven and bread is like this man's sin. And once the church has become mixed with this leaven and taken this leaven on, it will spread all throughout until it's taken over. And we're actually called to fight against this leaven of malice and evil and embrace the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, one thing I want to say at this point too, don't just think of this analogy as sort of kind, of, there is a sense where in, in the church allowing certain behavior to go on, it's going to allow other behavior to continue, right? So it's like, I have a couple kids, like if I let one kid do something, the other kid's definitely going to get to do it, right? I can't, I can't say to one kid, oh, that's fine. And to the next kid, okay, you can't do that. Like it's gonna, it's gonna be harder to do that. Once I allow this, I gotta allow that. And it, there is that going on, but also I want you to see something here. This is not just talking about allowing the behavior and that to spread, but also we needed to see the destructiveness of sin in this. That what's happening is actually this leaven is coming in and it's transforming and destroying what the church is supposed to be. And part of what Paul is calling for is not just to preserve the church, but to protect the church and to protect people in the church. I've been doing pastoral ministry for a long time And sometimes people have this idea of pastoral ministry or the church that it's kind of like some sort of like fairyland where you kind of just pretend that everything's really great and you kind of put a smile on and people hide their problems and do all that. That can be the perception that people have. And the reality is the exact opposite of that. Like this is a place where actually sin comes to light and as a pastor in the church, you where I've seen the destructive power of sin to ruin marriages, to ruin lives, to ruin careers, to ruin someone's faith. There is a destructive nature to sin that impacts not just you, but the people sitting next to you. And part of what Paul is calling for is is a desire to actually protect the church. And in particular, I think, I think of situations where there is abuse going on in the church, where there's sexual assault going on. And in those situations, what is loving and kind and just is to do what we can to protect people, innocent people who are being harmed in the church. It's actually an act of love and care. What would be unloving would be to put all of those things under the rug and to allow someone to continue to be victimized and harmed because we couldn't say no to them or stand up for the person who feels like they don't have a voice. So all of that to say, if you are experiencing abuse of some kind, if if you are being sinned against, it's okay to talk about that. It's okay to talk about that. Um, Now, all of this requires a bit of clarification that Paul's gonna go on with in verse nine. So let's read it. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. So Paul has actually already talked about this to the Corinthian church in a previous letter that we don't have access to. And apparently they either misunderstood him or they intentionally twisted his words. And so Paul wants to make this important clarification here that he's not calling the church to distance themselves from outsiders, from those outside the church in the world. From He expects those people He expects that in the city, there's going to be sexually immoral people. There are even gonna be people who maybe are visiting a church, checking things out, who are are living in all sorts of brokenness and sin. And he kind of wants to clarify, hey, I'm not saying distance yourself from them. Like to do that, you would have to just die because there's brokenness and sin all over the world. And we're called to love and serve and care for those people. That's part of why we're here. But instead, he zeroes in on anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, if someone's in the church and they claim to be a follower of Jesus, but they're living in a way that's contrary to that profession of faith, the church has an obligation to step in and to make judgments. Now, how do we make those judgments? And in particular, how do we do that in the culture that we're in right now, right? Or we live in a culture where on the one hand, we have uh, kind of a cancel culture where even repented sin should be punished and, and continue to kind of dish that out. Also, there's accusations of abuse that happen a lot, even when someone is just, kind of stepping into authority. There's all kinds of just weird, different things kind of blending in our culture. So how do we as a church kind of step in and do this well? And so this whole chapter has been describing what's often been called church discipline, which I kind of hate that phrase. I wish there was another word for it uh, because that just brings up all sorts of baggage and terrible associations. But, But this is when a church takes action against one of their own members. And in church discipline, the church is making judgment on a host of issues. And we often have a profound misunderstanding of it. So I wanna go through just a couple things uh, to kind of pull away from the text for a minute. Let's just talk about this for a minute, uh, a couple things, and then we'll start wrapping up. So the first thing, church discipline includes both, both formative and corrective discipline. Church discipline includes both formative and corrective discipline. So many times we think of discipline as only a corrective measure, right? So we discipline a child or an employee or a teammate to correct some sort of errant behavior. And while discipline does include that, it's much broader than this. Um, Discipline also includes the ways that we form and shape our lives for the better, Right, we talk about we want to be more disciplined. Right, discipline when we, we use discipline when we watch what we eat, when we exercise, when we train ourselves to do something a certain way. So you have formative discipline and corrective discipline, and both of them are actually important, and they serve different purposes. Formative discipline keeps us heading in the direction we want to head. Right, if there's some goal we have. Uh, we, we, formative discipline is how we train ourselves to stay on the path we need to stay on to reach that goal. Corrective discipline is what happens to push us to get back on the path when we've kind of strayed from it. In every organization that has some sort of goal or value or identity will have some sort of formative and corrective discipline. So sports teams, corporations, Clubs all have discipline policies. If you are employed, your employer has some sort of discipline, both formative and some sort of training, how you are to do things, the things that they want to see out of you as an employee, and also corrective if you move away from that. And corrective discipline measures will look different from place to place, but even the most inclusive organizations have either written or unwritten policies about removal in extreme cases. So for instance, one company that actually helps different workplaces create a more inclusive environment has created an inclusive code of conduct to help workplaces be more inclusive. And in that code of conduct, it states that the company, quote, will not tolerate discrimination, harassment, or any behavior or language that is abusive, offensive, or unwelcome employees who violate this company's code of conduct expectations will face disciplinary action. Possible consequences include additional training, verbal and written warnings, suspension and termination of employment. So in other words, if you are actually committed to a certain version of inclusion, you will have to exclude those that don't meet that standard. Okay? So in the same way, in the same way, the church has both formative and corrective discipline. Formative discipline includes things like teaching, preaching, prayer, uh, the sacraments, Lord's Supper, baptism, community, spiritual practices, Sunday morning liturgies, etc. All of these things shape us towards the way of Jesus and they keep us heading in the right direction. And so this is kind of what we saw last week in last week's sermon passage where Paul was giving the Corinthians this cross-shaped vision of Christianity. He was providing some formative discipline, forming them in the way that they needed to go. But the church also has corrective discipline. Now, oftentimes, we're gonna talk about this. This is done informally as people correct us when we've strayed from the way of Jesus. We need others who can look us in the eye and remind us what path we're supposed to be on. But other times, corrective discipline takes on a more formal nature, which sometimes includes what Paul's talking about, which is removal from the Lord's Supper and or removal from the church. So church discipline includes both, formative and corrective discipline. Second thing is corrective church discipline. So, looking at just that lens, corrective church discipline is a process that requires careful judgment. It's a process that requires careful judgment. The corrective church discipline that we see in Corinth, where Paul is calling them to remove a member from the church, this typically happens after a long, lengthy process. It doesn't start at removal. In fact, Jesus himself is the first one to kind of lay out a general outline for corrective church discipline. And he does this in Matthew 18. I want to read this for you. This is out of Jesus' mouth. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And so as a principle... The first step in this whole process doesn't start in some committee or in some elder meeting. It doesn't get aired out on a Sunday morning or in some members gathering. It starts by you going to the person who wronged you and correcting them one-on-one. If someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus has sinned against you, if they've done something wrong, Jesus actually wants you to take initiative and correct the person. To bring it to light. To tell them to clear the air. And when done correctly, this is where 90% of church discipline stops. Because the goal isn't punishment. The goal isn't, you did this, let's go see what the punishment is. The goal is restoration. The goal is healing the rift that happened between you and me when this sin took place. Now, restoration, that doesn't mean there are no consequences for things, right? I mean, if someone commits some vile act, if someone abuses children, we're not going to let them serve in the church kids' ministry, But there can be a way where that person repents and is restored to community, turns from that sin and never does it again. So as we can see with Jesus teaching, while a person remains unrepentant, which what I mean by that is they're resistant to change. They don't want to move away from the way that they're living. The process continues. More people slowly get brought into the process to reaffirm this correction. Eventually, elders and church members get brought in on the situation. And only after several conversations, only after pleading with the person to turn and repent to the way of Jesus, only then is someone removed from the church. Now, it needs to be said that these are general guidelines. Church discipline has to be informed by the wisdom of all of Scripture. Matthew 18 isn't the only place that shapes this process for us. And 2 Thessalonians 3 and Titus 3, both of those give specific instructions on how to handle specific situations such as idleness and divisiveness. In Paul's final letter to the Corinthians, he addresses restoring those who repent and what that looks like. Things change if... The, you know, if the nature of the sin is public or if the person in question is a church leader, all of those things inform this, which again goes back to the point that every situation has to be handled with care and judgment. And let me just say, we don't always get it right. As a church, there's times that we fumbled this. There's times where we've moved too slowly to step in. There's times where we move too quickly in stepping into a situation. So all of this requires wisdom, judgment, prayer. It requires the spirit of God to speak and move. And it requires you to be a part of that whole process. So third thing I want us to see, removal from the church is aimed at serious, outward and unrepentant sin serious outward and unrepentant sin. Removal is a serious step that must be taken with extreme care. When a person's removed from the church, the church, in essence, is saying this. We can no longer affirm your profession of faith in Jesus. You are living in such a way that we can no longer go on saying, that you are a follower of Jesus. It's like what Jesus ends up getting to. What does he say? He says, you need to treat the person like a Gentile and a tax collector, like someone who doesn't follow me. You have to recognize that. And this is a step that is aimed at that. And it's aimed at serious outward and unrepentant sin. Let me explain that. So serious. Now, let me just say this. All sin is destructive. All sin is against God's word. I'm not saying anything other than that, but not all sin has the same magnitude or impact. So a moment of sinful anger against your wife is not the same as punching your wife in the face. Like Those are two separate things. Both are sinful, but there's a different magnitude and impact of one over the other. A lustful thought is not the same thing as shattering your family with adultery. A careless lie is not the same thing as habitually creating a web of lies. And so this step is aimed at serious sin. And that judgment, it requires careful judgment to spar some of that out. Also, it's aimed at outward, serious and outward sin. We don't remove a person from the church because we think they might struggle with pride. Uh, There needs to be evidence, not just hunches, okay? For instance, in the Corinthian case, it was well known that this man was in this sexual relationship with his stepmother. Uh, And the last thing is unrepentant. We're all sinners. We all will struggle with sin and removal is reserved for cases Where a person refuses to fight sin, they refuse to turn from their sin. And if, if in this case, if this man was actually repenting and fighting against his sin, Paul would not have demanded his removal. So where do we go from here with all this? Guys, thank you so much for sticking with this sermon. I'm surprised that half of you haven't left already. Um... So where do we go from here in this? Let's just kind of bring bring this down and bring this to a close. First thing I want us to kind of wrestle with and see. Our posture towards sin should be one of mourning. Should be one of mourning. Paul, he points out to them their arrogance and their boasting, and he says, instead you should have mourned the Corinthians, they approach this guy with arrogance, and arrogance distorts and twists the way that we see sin. And typically, when we think of an arrogant approach to sin, what do we think of? Hypocrisy, right? Judgmentalism, someone pointing a finger at someone else and looking down on others. And These people make a fuss about others to ease their guilt and shame that they feel about themselves. And Jesus constantly warns us against that kind of arrogance. But listen, that's not what Paul points out here. Instead, Paul points out this arrogance that led not to finger pointing, but to tolerance. They think too highly of their spiritual progress, so much so that they approach sin flippantly. Allowing something like this to continue in the church gives these people an opportunity to lower the bell curve so they could feel better about themselves. And there's arrogance there. And unfortunately, neither one of those responses, whether it's in a hypocritical response or a tolerating response, is actually a loving response to the person. Paul suggests a different way, mourning. Mourning flows not from protecting our image or from easing our consciences. Rather, it comes from seeing this man and his sin and the destruction of it rightly. It comes from recognizing the nature of sin to destroy the self and others. And this posture towards sin actually protects us from becoming numb and callous towards sin and also becoming scandalized and outraged towards sin. Having a posture of mourning sin, of seeing it rightly is important. The second thing, we have to grow and healthy confrontation and conflict. And this might be one of the most important points of this whole sermon. This is where church discipline starts. We have to get better at giving correction and receiving correction. When someone sins against us, our first instinct shouldn't be to go tell all our friends. It should be to sit someone down face-to-face, and clear the air. Maybe when that happens, we learn that we've just misread the situation. But maybe we've just helped our brother or sister stay on the right track towards Jesus. We all need others to help us along the way, and others need us. And this requires a commitment to one another that when things get hard, we stick it out and we work it out. And one of the things too, I think we just need to say in this is the church is supposed to be a place where things come to light. And I know often we think of the church as a place to keep secrets. And it's not. It's not. When others do something wrong to us, we need to clear the air with that. Keeping, keeping those things, keeping sin hidden is the way for sin to fester and grow. We have to voice those things. And if you are not in a place where it's safe for you to voice that, you need to bring other people into that. You need to shine light on the darkness. And the last thing, and we'll end with this, is that we must live into our identity. So buried in this really difficult, tough passage is one of the most beautiful statements on our identity in Jesus. Paul calls the church to engage discipline because he says, you really are unleavened. In other words, because of the blood of Jesus, because Jesus became our Passover lamb who was sacrificed for us, we actually are declared clean and righteous. And Jesus is saying this to the Corinthian church that is tolerating an incestuous relationship. And God is saying, you actually are clean. Now live into that. You actually are righteous in Jesus. Jesus has given his righteousness to you. His grace has no bounds. Now live in that way. Run towards that and run after that. That is who we are. He doesn't demand that we be perfect or try to earn his grace. He freely gives it to us and he washes us clean by faith. And this identity we have in Jesus shapes and changes the way that we live. We don't try to live in such a way as to become righteous. We are righteous in Jesus and called to live into who we really are in him. And Jesus has called us into this body, right? One of the things I love about this is Paul is not just talking about you as an individual, but together you guys are the lump of bread, of dough. And Jesus cares for his church. That's what this is all about. Jesus actually cares about his church. He loves us and he wants to protect us. Would you stand with me?